Hey, 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 Whoppers. It's Madam Nymphadora, development educator, drag entertainer, and the credit union's spiciest queen, bringing you Woke-Ass People, a conversational series featuring storytellers, advocates, and disruptors. Today, we welcome one of my dear friends, Latika Webster, as we dive into a conversation about democracy, what it means to be disruptive, how to find the right mentor, bringing your authentic self to work, and facing adversity. Latika provides so much insight and has such a compelling story to share. I'm so excited and thrilled to be joined and share with you all today. Welcome back, all of you woke-ass people. Speaking of woke-ass people, I am here joined with one of my newest dear friends who is the wokest of woke, I would say, um, Latika Webster. Latika, where are you joining us from today? Hi, everyone. I am joining you today from Indianapolis, Indiana. Very Thank you cool. for having me. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us and have a conversation about democratic participation, socioeconomic participation. Um, you know, I, I, for, for those listening, we'll, we'll have Latika go into some detail here, just a little bit about uh, some of her experience and some of her passions, but we got uh, paired up and working together in the credit union space on some innovative change and uh, uh, topics around socioeconomic justice for people of color, LGBTQ plus individuals, women in leadership, among uh, uh, many uh, topics. But um, uh, Latika, you're in Indianapolis, Indiana. Are you born and raised in Indiana or what's your story there? Yeah, so I am a native Hoosier, as we call people from Indiana. I was born and raised here. Most of my family still lives here. Um, and shortly after graduating from college, I did leave Indiana for about five years, but I came back in about 2004 to be closer to my family, <clears throat> excuse me, to be closer to my family and just be here at a time in life where there were some things going on. Um, I ended up losing both of my grandparents within a year um, of moving back home, but I am born and raised here in Indianapolis. That's amazing. Now, I, I, I love the stories of people who are able to, you know, kind of go out and see the world, get a little bit of cultural seasoning and, and go back to their roots and, and, you know, tie up any loose ends or, you know, add on to those relationships um, that, you know, may have grown distant over time. So that's awesome that uh, you got to spend some time, hopefully, with your, your grandparents before they passed. That's, I'm sorry to hear that. I did. And just to, to share a little interesting story about that. So, you know, when I graduated from college, I, um, I stayed in the Midwest and my first professional job was in Illinois. So right next door. And I stayed there for a couple of years. And then I sort of wanted to get out of the Midwest and experience something a little different. So I went down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And early in my career, I actually was a university professional so I was working at different universities 
And when it came time for me to do my next job search, I had determined that I'm a city girl and I want to be in the city. And I applied for all these jobs in, in large, major metropolitan areas. So I applied for jobs in New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, a lot of East Coast places. And I'd come home for, for winter break that year. And when I went back to North Carolina, um, I was really homesick. And it was a feeling that sort of came out of nowhere. I just had this really strong, overwhelming sense that I needed to be home. And in the moment, it didn't make any sense to me, but I did end up taking a position and coming back home. And shortly thereafter, my grandmother got sick and ended up passing away the next year. And then the same year she died, my grandfather unfortunately suffered um, a brain injury after a routine surgery. And so he passed away about nine months after that incident. So they died in two years. But as I got older and could reflect on, you know, why was I back home, it sort of dawned on me that there was this feeling that was placed inside my heart that I just needed to be home. And in hindsight, it was that moment that I got homesick that I think God just put something on my heart that, that, that I knew I needed to be here. And, and, I, and I was needed here. I'm the oldest on both sides of my family. Um, and, and my family does look to me to help make lots of really important decisions. And so the fact that I was here when all this occurred, you know, several years later, it, you know, as I reflected on it, I realized that my place was to be here and to be here for my family. And even though that feeling didn't make sense at the time, um, it totally did years later. So even though it was a difficult situation, um, I am glad I was here and not 12 hours away from my family where I could be involved in making those decisions. I got to spend time with my grandparents that I didn't know was going to be you know, sort of the last time that I was able to spend with them. Mm -hmm. And it was a really poignant moment in my life where I recognized my role and my importance in my family and how even though we don't sometimes want to be the people that they lean on to help make those decisions, that you are that person. And, and I was very grateful that I was here to be a part of that. That's amazing. That's that's a really powerful story. And you know, one thing that I, I I will highlight there is what I consider to be an awakening that can wake us up are those moments where you know we question, like like you had said, I was homesick. I just felt like I had this pull to go. And, you know, being the leader, uh, the oldest, excuse me, the oldest, I bet you take on a lot of leadership uh, qualities and, and have in your growing up. So, you know, sometimes that that can put that that on you and, you know, kind of which which leads me into our, our topic of discussion on democratic participation. In a lot of our conversations, we've had some strong conversations about being active, having a plan to vote, um, whether that be in, in governmental elections or whether that be in our communities, our uh, higher educational institutions, whatever that may look at uh, look like. So, my question here is: when when you were you know making the choice to go to go to school and take your next steps, 
um, you know, what what was something that kind of turned on the the volume for you to be a leader, to be active, and to be involved? When did that happen for you? Yeah, I would say a lot of it really started because I'm a first-generation college student and really had a difficult time just navigating the university space. I didn't have anybody in my family to help me make certain decisions or to know I was making the right decisions. But what ended up happening is as I, you know, went through my college career, one of the things that just really struck me is that I just didn't want to see other students have to navigate the space with the same amount of difficulty that I did. And so I found myself getting not only involved on campus and student organizations, but I tried to align myself with groups that I, where I knew I could help people. And so I was a resident assistant. Um, I was the vice president of our black student union. And there were just some really um, eye-opening experiences that I had. Uh, my sophomore year, we had two incidents on campus, pretty back-to-back where we had to protest against our university police department and our university administration. And it was full on demonstrating. We did signs, we had secret meetings in the basement of a residence hall to talk about what our demands were as black students and to hold the administration accountable. And then even further in my college career, one of the avenues that I pursued was becoming a member of a Greek organization. And that is a very personal choice. You do have to reflect on what values the organization holds that align with your values. And I am a very proud and active member of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. Our, our principles revolve around scholarship, sisterhood, service, and being a finer woman. And that really wow. was what drew me to the organization. You know, this, this notion of finer womanhood and what that means. And part of what that meant was being a leader already, but also being someone who was willing to be active and engaged in the community through service projects and through educating students on different topics that related to our experiences. Um, I'm still a member and I'm still active in that organization. And you know, now we, we tell people that we are an action-oriented, community-conscious organization. We have several initiatives that impact specifically um, the Black community, but just the community at large re regarding domestic violence mm -hmm. and trying to get engaged to get out and vote. Um, we have a national um, initiative with the March of Dimes, and we also have a national initiative now with the NAACP and the Wildlife um, Society, I believe it's called. And so just being engaged in an organization like that really helps center what I feel are important issues and important topics that I want to get involved with, not only because they impacted me personally, but it gives me that opportunity to continue being engaged in my local community around these issues that are affecting people of color and women at a higher rate. So, you know, my activism started fairly early, but how I continued down that path was making sure that I was involved in and really engaged in organizations that I felt like 
had some strong initiatives that would help our communities. Um, very similar to what our credit unions do with help people helping people. Yeah, definitely. You know, and 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 I love that that now we're transitioning. Uh, you know, with with that mark of word of of credit unions because. Um, just some things that you just spoke about kind of rang some bells in my head. Um, you know, that a lot of students, I think, uh, especially, you know, today, and correct me if I'm wrong, but might, might follow the rules of what their administration at their university or college says that, okay, this is happening now. Um, you know, but you, you spoke a little bit about how, you know, you saw a student body of people who were like, hey, this isn't working for us. So we're going to provide a demonstration. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a lot of gumption that a lot of people want to partake in is how do we create this sort of change? Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, as we know, policy and politics itself have become so rigid um, over the years and, and been more exposed. But within the credit union space, you know, we have conversations often uh, about what we can do to level up, how we can actually get into fulfilling what those values and that mission work is. Uh, because I do think that there are a lot of people who stick around in the credit union movement because of like you shared of your desires and passions with your Greek sisterhood is that, you know, there's, there's value base there. Um, you know, so one thing that I kind of want to jump over to is you talk very heavily and extensively about your sorority and how you stay committed year after year because there's all these initiatives and that we're doing the right thing for the right purpose. Um, you know, what? what is something that credit unions could learn from Greek life or, or from organizations like that? How, how could credit unions adopt that sort of mentality and not just credit unions, you know, we were talking league levels, credit union service organizations, vendors, suppliers, any of those, what could we learn? Mm -hmm. I, I'm a storyteller. So I'm going to tell a little <laughs> story that's going to connect to this. You know, um, my background is I actually started out as a student affairs professional and um, got my master's in higher ed administration and worked in student affairs for 20 years in different capacities. There was a moment in my career where I recognized what I knew to be true was no longer true. And as a leader, as a, as a director of a department, I had to figure out what that meant. And what that meant was it was time for us to evolve our programming structure so that we could better meet the needs of students but as a leader, I also had to recognize maybe I didn't have the tools anymore because what I learned in class getting my master's just didn't seem to resonate or even describe the population of students that I was working with. And so what it forced me to do was it forced me to lean on my staff members who are, you know, quite a few years younger to, than me to say, what is important and what do you value right now? And I see the credit union world sort of in that same space right now for a couple reasons. Um, I think our country is facing a reconciliation of some of the systemic issues that have affected women and people of color in particular. And mm -hmm. so as, an, as, a, as a, an industry that is focused on people helping people, there's now this reconciliation that maybe what we've been doing isn't what we should be doing anymore. 
but now we have to evolve. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of organizations are recognizing that they have to evolve in a lot of different ways right now. And our, our youth and our young professionals are the foundation of this. You know, now we have four generations of people occupying the same space in our society, right? We have baby boomers, we have Gen Xers, we have millennials and we have Gen Z, but our Gen Z population and our millennials are the populations that are putting these issues at the forefront. And so we know that a lot of leaders in our credit union space may come from a different generation and now they're having to reconcile what we're doing doesn't work anymore. So we need to find ways to get actively engaged with our young professionals in a way that is going to support their creativity, that is going to support their passion, and it, and it, but it's a different generation. The generations are much more diverse. Um, they are much more willing to stand up for social justice issues. They are much more willing to be disruptors. And I think that is a new space but also a new opportunity for our leaders if they can recognize it. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky is that as a leader, you have to be willing to recognize, I actually don't have the tools to meet or address this need right now, but I have people in my space, in my world, in my industry that do have the tools. And so now how do I connect with those individuals to say, hey, we are experiencing some issues in our community that as a league or as an organization, we just have never really focused our efforts on. And we know that now this is, it has a bigger importance. And so we need you, um, we need allies, we need people of color to speak up. Well, young people are not going to speak up if they're in an environment where they don't feel supported where they don't feel having a difference of opinion is valued. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that as we move forward, not just because of the pandemic, while I think the pandemic did force a lot of, a lot of companies and organizations to really um, focus on how they operate, that is going to feel and look very different in the future. And a lot of organizations will not thrive if they don't recognize they have to evolve. You have to. We are at that place in our society where I think it has become apparent that a lot of the systemic issues are real and mm -hmm. companies have to make a real effort to address them. And if they don't, um, I feel a lot of organizations are going to lose young people and you, they're going to lose the talent of our young professionals because they don't, they don't look at the value the same. You know, even my generation and my mom's generation, which isn't very far apart, um, you know, I'll share my mom had me as a teenager. So even though she's a baby boomer, we could in real life be sisters. But even in her generation, you know, they stayed at jobs and they just dealt with whatever mm -hmm. issues they had to deal with. And they stayed for 40 years and they retire and they're done. Well, Gen Xers, millennials and Gen Zs don't operate that way. And I just hope that a lot of companies recognize the way to continue to keep these people in their organizations and to really be able to, um, to utilize. I mean, the, the energy and the passion is amazing of our young professionals. 
And we really are just going to have to move in a way that 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 creates an opportunity and creates the space for support and for the talent to thrive or these organizations are fine that they won't last is in my in my opinion i'm not an expert but that (laughs) that is my that is my opinion yes no i'm glad you did say that because actually on on another episode with a guest um i had said we are not uh experts here but rather opinion experts that we're an expert in our own individual opinion and that's what's beautiful about this and and on that vein of opinion too where i think that some leaders and organizations might be hesitant to opening them up to some of those opportunities is because uh, they're afraid of what happens if we you know the average age of a credit union member is between 45 and 47 so i think that there might be a fear that if we don't focus on this specific demographic, then we will lose stakeholders within the credit union. But I think exactly with what you said that we're not hitting on is who else do you have in your organization that might have those ideas or or fresh content or um, I don't know about you, but what I've heard in organizations before is I tried that five years ago, it didn't work. Okay, society changes for anybody that studied psychology and sociology, it changes, it's supposed to, right? Uh, and, and when we don't adapt to those things, we aren't being inclusive. And there are a couple statements that I thought of in, in you sharing that story that some of our experience and leadership um, in our organizations we might feel is two statements specifically I feel that are not inclusive statements are we've always done it that way so that's why we're going to do it Um, that nullifies anybody else's ideas or innovation Um, the other one is oh no not that way that if we talk about doing new things, um, you know, specifically talking about things. Oftentimes I get told, share your opinion, but after I do, I'm told that's not the right way to do it or go about doing this, but that's not the right way. Are those really inclusive comments? And, you know, in that vein, we've had some conversations, you and I off, off uh, camera and off recording about young people and mentoring young people. What is your model of being an inclusive mentor? What would that look like? And, and what advice, I suppose, could you give to somebody out there that might think they're a mentor to somebody because that person confides in them or tells them triumphs that they've had or struggles? You know, what is a mentor? You know, it, it is funny. You, you reference our offline conversations and one we just had was that well, I don't really know why anyone wants to talk to me because I'm just being myself. (laughs) And, um, you know, sometimes just being ourselves, we don't give ourselves even the own recognition that what you have to offer is valuable. And so, you know, I wouldn't ever say that there was a time in my life where I, I sat myself down and said, I'm going to mentor. It just is something that happened because I was a person who was willing to share all the good and bad experiences I had been with, um, been through with other people just so they wouldn't have to go through it. Mm -hmm. And so for me personally, um, 
the the people that I tend to mentor do tend to be people who look like me or who've had similar experiences, really because I'm just not afraid to share what those experiences are and it resonates with them. And so, you know, I look at being a leader, I look at being being a boss, a supervisor, a mentor, any of that. In that role, your 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 job and your goal is to help someone get to their next level, whatever that is. As a boss, it's helping an employee get that position that's the next level. But for my students and for my mentor my mentees, I'm always asking them how can I help you? What does that look like? What in my experience can help you? And a lot of times, you know, it's really just giving them guidance and advice based off of my real life experience that helps them. And so I think it's important that when you're developing a mentoring relationship, number one, I, let me go back and say, a mentoring relationship is a two-way relationship. I have learned many, many things from the young people that I choose to mentor um, on a variety of topics. Some of it is the funny things about our generations that are different, but it's seeing what their life is like now and through their eyes and just how different it is from my experience. So I wanna say you, you can learn from your mentees and you should, um, but as a mentor, I, if that is a formalized role, well, I won't even say that even in an informal role, I am there because I'm truly committed to your success and helping you get to that next level, whatever that looks like for you. It's not what I want for you. It's what you want for you. And so that's why I'm a storyteller. That's why I, um, I, I, try, I try to tell my friends, I, I really don't try to be a know-it-all. I just like, I'm a person that just likes to know a lot of things, but I also put the time into researching things mm -hmm. so that I know um, what I'm talking about is, is, a, is a factual statement or a factual situation. And I share that stuff with people because my hope is that they take, that, they take something away from that and they can go and say, you know, I had no idea that I could do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, my niece is 13. She wants to start a business. And I say, well, we will help you start a business. Um, I've started businesses and I've had plenty of resources, but you still have to do the work. I'm willing mm -hmm. to share the resources, but this is your passion. It's not my passion. So I can't do the work for you. But when you are ready, we're going to sit down and write your business plan with this resource that I already have from my own experience of starting businesses. And so, you know, if you're going to be in a mentoring relationship, I think it is very important that you understand you are there for a reason and a purpose. And what that purpose is, is going to vary and differ by who, those individuals. Some people that I mentor, they just want a listening ear from someone who's an experienced professional. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they legitimately want actual resources. And I just try to remember that. I try to remember, even on those days where I'm like, I don't understand why anybody really wants to talk to me. I don't really have, you know, I'm not a big superstar or anything like that. But I realize that they, they're developing these relationships with me because they get some value out of what I share with them mm -hmm. and those pieces of myself um, that I could keep to myself, but I choose not to. 
Um, and that's where the value and the importance comes in my relationship with them and maintaining that relationship. I have worked at five universities. I can't even tell you how many students I've met through either my university work or even just people I've been connected in through the community, either through my sorority or other organizations. And if, if, if you legitimately feel like I'm a mentor for you, we still have a relationship in some capacity to this day. It doesn't matter. We don't live in the same city and state anymore. It doesn't matter. We only talk two times a year. Those mm -hmm. individuals know at any time they can pick up a phone and say, listen, I've got this situation I'm dealing with and I really want your advice and they will always have my ear. And so when you put yourself in a mentoring role, it's a lot of work. It, it, it is a lot of work to maintain those relationships. But if you value, value those relationships, like I value my mentoring relationships, you will make that time. Um, that's an unwritten rule of being a mentor is that I will create space and opportunity in my life for you when you need it. As long as you make the ask, I will be here to help guide you in whatever it is you need from me. And I think that that two-way street, is, you know, you have to have that open relationship when you are working with young people in particular, because um, it is a different generation, a lot more open, mm -hmm. and they've had a lot more diverse experiences um, than previous generations that just really make their, um, their experience a, a little different than, say, mine or even a generation before me. Sure. No, definitely. I love that you said relationship. That's one of my favorite R words. I have two favorite R words that I like to talk about in um, credit union space um, specifically, but also in relation to DEI and in relation to um, our conversation here about mentors is uh, for me personally, finding a mentor has been a challenge. And some of it was, you know, in my organizations that I previously worked in, it was, you need to find a mentor in here, um, in-house. And that was not something that I was down with, A, because I have not had a manager that was a person of color um, or somebody in leadership that was a person of color or a queer person. And there, there just wasn't that relatability. Um, first and foremost, but that representation of like, this person doesn't have the same lived experience as I do. So, you know, I want my feelings, my thoughts, my visions, my dreams to be valid. I don't want them to be, you know, brushed off because somebody doesn't see what I see in the world. And, and that has been a challenge. And, you know, my brain is always looking for fun, fresh ideas. So I'm sitting here thinking, Hmm, what sort of like mentor program could we develop that 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 does you know place people because um there there are wonderful organizations in the credit union space the African American Credit Union Coalition the National Latino uh, Credit Union Professionals CU Pride there are these representative organizations but sometimes at least from my experiences um you know, you had to ask your boss or your credit union or your organization to even participate in those that, how are you to network? And here I am, you know, a mixed queer individual in Nebraska where, you know, I was telling a friend this morning, a, a coworker now who lives in California that like, there've been events that I've gone to where I have been one out of a hundred that is non-white. 
And, you know, it's so hard for some people to, to wrap their heads around, but, you know, like you said too, there's such a younger generation um, underneath us that are seeing more of the world and seeing how, you know, startup businesses are getting started. And that's kind of where my head is as I'm, you know, at the end of my twenties, I'm seeing so many different people around me starting businesses in and out of COVID and they're, they're being largely successful. Yet some of my dreams have been to start a credit union and it is damn near impossible to even get that going. But, you know, latching back to our, our conversation on disruptors and different generations in the credit union space specifically is, you know, decades ago, credit unions weren't like they are now. You know, somebody throughout the last few decades said, we need our credit unions to look like banks. When, when they were started, all of these employees came together or these people with that common bond said, we aren't represented at our financial institution. So we're gonna take this shoe box, put all of our shares in it. And Janet, is, Janet or Steve or Paul, they're going to manage this, right? Um, but that hasn't been the proper representation of who credit unions do represent. And, and that's been the biggest urge for getting this podcast going and having more conversations because for, for the nine years I've been in the credit union movement, different topics come up, whether they be taboo by some or you know something that are off limits. Cannabis has been one of them. LGBT individuals in the credit union space is another. This year, it, it was pulling teeth to get some organizations, not, not just in the credit union space, but nationally to get organizations to recognize and say Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, those are things that our younger generations are seeing within the workforce. You know, and when you've got, uh, you know, some, I, I've had some conversations with baby boomers who were going, we've been there, we've done that. We don't need to do this. Um, but that's what prompted some of this for me was there isn't representation there aren't people out there that are, as John Lewis would say, making good trouble. There aren't mm -hmm. people who are getting into that good trouble to say this isn't okay. And, um, you know, Madam Nymphadora wants to be uh, some of that with some, some of these woke ass people to say, we are going to make some changes here because uh, it, it, it's been going on for too long that we are conforming to, to things around us that uh, we, we need to change, quite frankly. You know, there's so much in what you said was a little bit of a trigger for lots of things I've done in my career. Um, I, it, it's very interesting because for a, a long time in my professional life, I really struggled because I, I could not find an appropriate mentor for me. You know, as a as a young black woman with a pretty strong personality, not afraid to say what I think, not afraid to say what I feel. Um, it's been a struggle for me sometimes in the professional space to feel like I could truly be my authentic self. And so throughout my career, I constantly sought out mentors that could help me with this because as a lot of people of color know, it, it's very difficult to have to navigate a professional space for eight hours a day where you feel like you have to be a fake 
person. It's not your true personality simply because of the environment you're in, um, whether that's, you know, living in a conservative state or you're one of X number of individuals in your company that's Black, it becomes very difficult to feel like you can have that authenticity without people get, you know, treating you like you're a stereotype. You're the angry Black woman or, um, you know, when you're just really being assertive. And so throughout my whole career, I've struggled with finding an appropriate mentor because I would always get these people who would make me feel like I was wrong or like, well, you can't say that. Well, why can't I? I, I, I need someone to tell me why I can't express my truth without feeling like I am wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think it, when you're looking for a mentor, it's really important. It doesn't mean you have to find someone with the same personality as you. But what I found is I was, I was being navigated toward mentors who I knew wouldn't understand my perspective and they would try to get me to change. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't have any learning to do because we do all know as people of color that navigating the workspace can be very political, um, but it's very personal. It's very personal to feel like you're a fake person from eight to five and how to, how you internalize that you're literally two people, half of your day, you're one person and you get home and you're someone completely different. Um, If you don't have that shared experience with me as a woman of color or a person of color, it's something that's very difficult to get people to understand Mm -hmm. how it can tear you down even when you're the best professional that you can be to know that you're being judged by simply being outspoken. And might I add, almost all of the time, it's a truth that needs to be said. People just don't like your delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is one area that I have continued to struggle with in my career because I can't have a mentor who doesn't have a strong personality like me. Um, because I feel like people who don't are going to try to tell me I need to change. And I'm a seasoned enough professional now to know I don't need to change. I might need to work on my delivery, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. And I think oftentimes young people and people of color and women um, in particular, even those in the LGBTQ population, you get to this place in your career where you go home at night and you feel like you're wrong in how you feel and you're not wrong um and so it's very important to understand yourself and to understand what you want to get out of a mentor and at some point i just determined for myself i needed a mentor with a strong personality because that was the person i was going to learn best from that was the woman that could sit me down and say hey listen sis this is how I navigated this space and still felt like I could be my authentic self. I still am figuring that out as a 45 year old woman with a 20 plus year career. I am still struggling because I haven't found an appropriate mentor that I can sit down and say, help me, help me understand. So I don't go home at night and I internalize all these things that make me feel bad about who I am as a person. I don't want to feel bad anymore and I shouldn't. And so, you know, being people of color and women where we have to do things 
twice as good as everyone else and we have to work twice as hard to then throw on top of that, well, I can't even be my authentic self in my workspace because people won't understand me. They will label me instead of listening to what I have to offer. And so everybody doesn't need that in a, in a mentor, but I did. You know, I, um, again, I'm a storyteller, so I'm gonna tell one more story. By happenstance, at one time in my career, my entire department was Black women at a small, tiny, liberal arts college. Wow. This, this happened by circumstance. And so the elephant in the room was that we were on this campus where people couldn't tell us apart. We did not look alike, but people called us by each other's names. Um, people would ask the women who worked for me, well, aren't you the person that's in charge of the housing department? And they would say, no, that's Latika, that's not me. And so there was a day in one of our staff meetings where I said, okay, we're not, we're not gonna talk about work today. What we're gonna talk about is something that you are going to experience in your career as a black woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna tell you what that is right now. But at some point in your career, you will reach a crossroad where you have to decide. And it's not fair, it doesn't feel good, but you will have to decide, are you gonna remain your authentic self and navigate the challenges that will bring or are you going to play the game? This is a, a road we all get to and you will have to choose a path. I chose not to play the game because anybody that knows me personally knows authenticity is literally the foundation and center of who I am. Mm -hmm. And it would have been more detrimental to me as an individual to play the game, so to speak. Yes. So I had to learn how to walk in my truth and be okay with the target that was gonna be placed on my back. So what that meant for me is, not only did I have to do things well, I had to go five steps above and beyond because I knew people were coming for me and I had to be ready. So we all know the phrase, you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. Mm -hmm. And so I, I stay ready. So. I knew if I went to a meeting and I spoke my truth, people were not going to like it, but I could back it up by saying, let me tell you why I think that. And let me give you these facts. This isn't an opinion. These are facts. But I, I purposely chose that path for me personally. I'm not saying that either path is right or wrong. You as an individual just have to choose that path for yourself. And it's yeah. not always an easy or fun place to be but I think as I've gotten older that need to be my authentic self whether I was in a professional space or a personal space became very important to me but I had I again as a as a black woman that they all looked up to in a leadership role I chose that moment to mentor them and to say this is something that will happen to you, I guarantee you, and it's not going to be pretty. Um, that path and that decision is a personal decision, but it's going to happen. And I just want you guys to know 
I'm here to support you, whatever path you want to take. But when you get to that place in life, you have to be ready for what comes next, whatever that looks like for you. For me, I, I knew I just couldn't sleep well at night if I chose this path where I just sat in the background and I let people treat me whatever way they were going to treat me because I was a black woman who, who they didn't understand. But that was okay because I'm going up the ladder. That would never work for me ever. And yeah. so I chose the hard path. I chose the, the path where I'd go into a meeting with whomever and say, you know, no, that's just, I'm sorry. That's not the truth. And this is the truth. And you're not going to like it. But just last night, we were all having dinner together and everybody felt this way. And now no one feels comfortable saying it. So I'm going to say it. Because if you don't know the truth about how people feel about things in the work environment, or you don't really know people's perspectives, these individuals are never going to feel valued. And I just right. got to a place where I couldn't live with myself working for a company and knowing I didn't feel valued, where I at least didn't speak my truth. Now, you can speak your truth and nothing may change. Um, and then as a professional, you have to decide what that means, but for 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 people in marginalized communities, because it's not just people of color, it's not just women, mm -hmm. people in marginalized populations, these are really difficult decisions and choices we have to make as professionals that I think our allies understand, but in a typical work environment where there's not a ton of diversity, there may be a conservative leaning to the organization, whatever that means, these are difficult spaces for us to navigate. And that's why finding these mentors who understand you who, and, and, you know, you'll have, you'll find a lot of different perspectives. You'll find people that say, I want a mentor that's a black woman because I'm a black woman and we have a shared lived experience. Like you said mm -hmm. earlier, we just had an article come out about why it's important to mentor outside your race. There are val there's value and pros and cons to both sides of that discussion. And you have to make a personal choice about what's best for you. And so I really want, you know, the listeners to recognize we're not giving you, we're not telling you this is the way to do it. There are many ways to do it. There are many paths. Um, you ask the questions from the people you trust. You talk to your mentors to get their advice and their guidance and their experiences to help you make those decisions for yourself. And that's what a good mentor will do. A good mentor will give you the guidance and the advice and say, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just sharing what I know. And I want you to reflect on our conversations and reflect on how we've supported each other and make your own decision, whatever that is. And I will support that decision. Definitely. You said a key word there too, value. And, and, and that came up, I, I was on a panel discussion earlier this week and we had a, it was called personal values, professional persona. And it, it was specifically themed about LGBT individuals bringing who they are to work and is there a line? And I, I've had this conversation with you offline. I've had this conversation with uh, some other friends of mine in the credit union space who are specifically women of color, um, who have, we've had conversations of, do I need to ask permission uh, to wear my hair a certain way? 
do I need to ask permission to dress a certain style? Um, for me, I've had internalized questions. Um, am I, do I need to ask permission before I paint my nails or do my makeup? And for me, because you know, you and I are similar, I think we have that that strong, bold personality to where, you know, my mom, uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful woman, but she sees the world very differently. And that's what I mean by that. So, you know, when I told her that, uh, you know, I, I did my makeup in these pictures, I, uh, as Dan, I should say, and painted my nails and all this, yada, yada, she would ask, what, what did your boss say about that? What did your organization say about it? And my literal response to her was, if anybody says anything, that's discrimination. They can't. They literally cannot tell me that I am not allowed to be who I am. And why I'm, I'm queuing in on values here is because that for me determined that if the organization you work for says you can't be like that, then that organization might not line up with your values. In fact, it doesn't line up with your values. And um, you know, if you have a mentor in that shop, or you know, that would be a good time to lean on your mentor um, that you have out there, or your your support group to say, you know, I, I need some help through this. And I think so oftentimes. Um, marginalized communities have taken the back seat because this is what's happened. This is how we've always done it. Um, there's no need to change this. We're just going to keep operating to the beat of this drum um, because it works well. And because people don't want to, you know, break into that sensitivity training about what, what that toxic masculinity and chauvinism um, or superiority, that elitist mentality, where that comes from how it's directed and navigated. Um, but I'm so glad that you shared so much about yourself there because um, I'm a bold personality as well. Um, we can probably say it a million times, Latika and I are bold, woke-ass people. Um, yes. But I have gone to bed, like you said, at nighttime, feeling like I was wrong. And I know that there are people out there on listening to this who in some capacity have felt like they were wrong um for being who you are and that is a moment where i'll say step outside of what you think you know and it's okay to question things it's okay to defy that as long as you are not compromising your values within that process and um you know to to kind of circle back to our uh the topic of community involvement and you know we have an an, an election upcoming and, and elections beyond you know this isn't just the the say so of elections it is a very important one um but my question here for you is how do people or i should say what is your advice to people who might be first-time voters. They might not be 18. Uh, I know some people who are in their 40s and 50s who have never voted in their entire life. Um, you know, what's something, that, a message that you have for these folks? You know, in particular, I am, I will say having um, grown up in a very conservative state um, without getting into, you know, politic, you know, what side I'm on, I will say I am completely excited and encouraged by the number of young people I am seeing that are exercising their right to vote. Um, 
you know, coming from a, a community um, where there are individuals in my own family who don't vote and who don't feel like their votes matter because of where we live, I just want to encourage people to not only look at the issues that impact your community and impact you as an individual and looking at those political affiliations that are going to really work on, you know, those initiatives and goals that are going to be supportive of your community. As a, you know, and I'll come at this from a comp the complete perspective of being a black person in America. People died for my right to vote. You know, people marched, people stood for days, um, but people gave their life for me to be able to vote as a black person women fought for my right to vote. And so while that may not resonate with you because that happened, quote unquote, in the past, I especially wanna encourage people of color and young people to think about that and to really go back and know the history of this country. Um, in preparation for this interview, I don't know why, I actually started thinking about I'm, I'm one generation removed from slavery, just one. I'm one generation removed. Um, I thought about my grandma was born in the 20s, 30s. She's, she's not alive anymore, so she can't get me, but my grandma <laughs> was born in the 30s. My mom was born in the 50s, late 50s. So my mom was born right around the civil rights era but where there were still lots of segregation. Um, but I, I, I never had an opportunity. I never talked to my grandparents about what it was like to grow up in a time where slavery still existed. And the recognition that I'm just a generation or so removed from slavery means it didn't happen so long ago. And so I really hope that this energy I'm seeing from our young people and you know, Gen Xers out there and baby boomers, we were passing the torch and it's okay. Um, you know, it's time to pass the torch onto a different generation and we need to get comfortable and be okay with the fact that they're gonna do it differently than we did. Um, they're out there in the streets marching and protesting all day, all night. And it, and it, and it, it brings tears to my eyes when I see it because as much as I don't necessarily understand this generation sometimes, what I like to call the Instagram generation and the YouTube generation, these are the people that are getting engaged. And, and let's just face it, they have a different energy than a mid 40s or a 50 or 60 year old. There's just a different energy. <laughs> and so again, as a black woman, it's, especially this year with the, with the pandemic and all the social unrest and just dealing with all these systemic issues, it has really caused me to reflect on the rights that people fought and died for me to have. And I have not voted yet. I'm in a state that did not make early voting very easy. Um, tomorrow I'm going to vote and I'll, I'm gonna stand in line for eight hours if that's what it takes. And it's not going to be fun or pretty, it's gonna be cold, but as I stand in that line and think about my ancestors and I think about my family members and the generations they came before me, 
I have a responsibility. It's a responsibility. And so I don't want this to come across as judgment. I just want people to reflect on the responsibilities that we have um, to, to make sure that, that the generations that came before us and fought for these rights, it wasn't in vain. And mm -hmm. so now more than ever, voices need to be heard from people of color and our allies and all the marginalized communities because just if you ain't woke up yet, people, America's not gonna, we're not gonna be minorities in the near future. Mm -hmm. um, the dynamic is going to shift. The dynamic and the power, there's gonna be a power shift in America. And right now is the beginning of our reconciliation with all the things that have occurred in our past. And people need to get on board because if you don't, um, you won't survive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, minorities are not going to be people of color anymore. Minorities might, will be white people. And as a community, we have to learn how to work across the aisle. As a community, we have to learn how to focus on bipartisan issues. You know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about all the posts I'm seeing of people voting and why they voted. And I've already decided what I'm gonna post after I vote tomorrow. It is simply going to be, I voted for we. I didn't vote for me. Yeah. I didn't vote one way because my business is thriving. I voted for we because I can't live in a society anymore where people aren't equal, where there are kids in cages, where people are getting discriminated against at work and not having any resources to support them. So mm -hmm. I am simply voting for we, the people. That is what we should stand for. And as long as some of our people don't matter, none of us matter. And so at the end of the day, I can give my laundry list of reasons why I'm voting one way or the other, whatever that looks like for you. But for me personally, tomorrow, when I cast my vote very decidedly, it is going to be for we, the people, period. That doesn't mean every candidate is going to meet my needs. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to vote for the party and the candidates that I feel are going to impact change in America for all of us. And I have my views on what that looks like, but I just encourage people to exercise their right to vote. I encourage people to really reflect on how important it is that we all have this right, but that we use it. We use our voice. Um, I've got my election day outfit ready. And oh, basically yeah. I have a shirt and a matching mask that says my voice, my vote is my vote, or I'm sorry. My, my vote is my voice, I think is what it says. I probably should go read that. But <laughs> use your voice to vote on the issues that you are passionate about and that matter to you and your community and to the community at large, we all occupy many spaces. For me, this election, the community that I'm representing is the community of the United States of America and an America that celebrates freedom for us all. Um, so please get out and vote. Please exercise your, your right to vote and use your voice um, for good and to really think through how these policies will impact not just your family, but the community and people around you that you care about. Harriet, 
I love that. Yes, period. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready to punch the ballot tomorrow without flipping a ballot box. That's what I want to do. <laughs> can't do that without getting arrested. But I, you know, I've never, I, we, I've never experienced a, a year like this. Um, mm -hmm. I used to live in a different part of Indiana, um, a smaller community where it took me 10 minutes to vote. Um, I live in the capital city of, you know, in Indianapolis now, and it's not going to be 20 minutes to vote and mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Um, I, I'm so energized by seeing people in a few groups I'm in, people who don't look like me at all, who are saying, this is why I voted a certain way. And I stood in the rain and I stood in eight hours uh, to get my vote cast. And I think about my grandparents who are not here anymore. Think about my grandma who is still here. I have one living grandparent and I want her to be comfortable and safe going out to vote. Um, but I think about what they lived through and what experiences they had that because of the fight that they went through, I don't have to experience. It doesn't mean everything is, is, is great in America right now, but it's right. definitely better than what generations before me went through. And I have to continue using my voice to support my community, whatever that looks like, whether it's through mentoring, circling back, whether it's through my, you know, action-oriented, community-conscious sorority, whether it's educating my family on why it's important that they vote. Um, you know, you have to use your voice in that way to impact the change that you wanna see. And that's what I'm choosing to do. And that's what I hope you choose to do. Latika, thank you so much. That was that was literally the best way to wrap this up. And, and I just wanted to say thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation. I know I learned a whole lot. And you know, one thing I will say is uh, I know I know when we spoke about uh, setting up this interview, you did say, um, what do people What's so special about me? I hope that uh, you are flooded with with praise following this because you energize me, you inspire me. Um, you are somebody that I think about uh, from time to time when I go to post or say something. I think, oh, should I? And then I think, you know what? We we have to be representative. We have to be vocal. We have to be woke. And we have to be participants in our society. And uh, I think we had a full conversation today and I am so excited to dig in and have another one with you. Thank you so much, Latika. Thank you for having me. And I just wanna say, I think what you're doing is phenomenal. I think using your voice and your platform um, to get people engaged and to get people energized is important. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited and happy to be a part of it. And just thank you for offering me the opportunity to share my experience and to share um, my perspective. Absolutely. Thank you. You're so kind. I appreciate that so much. Everybody, tune in next time to Woke Ass People. <laughs>